we employ policemen and soldiers and sanitary inspectors and uh, Department of Commerce officials, all to serve us. We call them public servants. And when a policeman gets uppish, he has to be reminded. that we pay his salary and that his job is to serve us and not to be a kind of uh, admirable Crichton sort of butler who takes the upper hand. But of course the very idea of a servant still calls it, has in it, doesn't it, something aristocratic. And as we all know, in this country it is increasingly difficult to get services of any kind. More and more it is felt beneath the individual's dignity to be, say, a waiter, a barber. After all, they give you a certain kind of service. Certainly, it's beneath anyone's dignity to shine shoes, because that's the feet, and that's very low down. It's like kissing people's feet. Uh, to give massage, to uh, do all these things for other people that are you know, rather material skills. Increasingly, you have to get them in another way, either by a do-it-yourself system or by some sort of machinery. And so in the same way, people who used to give service want to translate themselves professionally. People who were formerly called undertakers now call themselves morticians. Uh, janitors call themselves maintenance services. Uh, I suppose barbers will soon call themselves tonsorial experts. Uh, all sorts of things like that are, going to, uh, are happening right now in order to give the sense of equality all round. And so uh, the guy who gives you gas at the garage will notice your first name on your credit card and will address you by it. I get very irritated to be called Al. I just don't respond to that form of address at all. <laughs> but I suppose that's my British snobbishness. <laughs> But here it is, you know, everybody slaps everybody's back. Now, I was very puzzled by this when I first came to live in California. Because here the use of first names and this kind of familiarity uh, is extraordinarily common. And when I found myself on first name terms with a man who was in a certain sense my boss, who was the president of the University of the Pacific, I felt distinctly uncomfortable. The reason I felt uncomfortable was that I felt the whole thing was insincere. That uh, there was not the kind of relationship between us which would normally be represented by being on first name terms. But there was what was much worse and sort of effort to prove that there really ought to be that kind of relationship when neither side had any intention of forming it. And that's very baffling if you come from outside. And you don't know, I suppose, what all good born and bred Californians know. What are the cues, the subliminal cues, which distinguish one form of first name address from another? Because what eventually happens is that people have two first names, the, the, the published one and the nickname, known only to an intimate circle, used only by an intimate circle. But you see, what we see in this, then, is the creeping socialism, the creeping uh, abolition of what is precious and what is private and what is property. 
and feel that as that disappears and as all fences disappear, the collection of human beings will simply dissolve into an amorphous mass. And indeed, uh, there is a danger of that. We have seen people disappear into amorphous masses. We have seen Hitler's legions. We have seen uh, the things that Chinese can do with what they, the military tactic called the human sea. When swarms and swarms of troops, all identically uniformed, are absolutely thrown at the enemy in wave after wave after wave. But let us not forget that the generals of the Western powers did exactly the same thing in the First World War on both sides. They used the tactics of the human sea uh, in which uh, the lives of individuals meant nothing whatsoever. Now, there are two different ways of responding to what we will call the invasion of privacy. <clears throat> Very often, you will encounter someone who attacks your privacy in a psychological way. It may be a drunk sitting next to you at a bar. Or it may be someone <coughs> who fancies himself as an expert psychological guru. And uh, when you express an opinion, or say, you know, you walk up to such an individual and say, good morning. How are you thinking? Why do you ask me? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and he immediately, you see, he breaks the social rules whereby you communicate with another person without actually saying anything. And the phrases like, how are you, nice day, isn't it? Are like on a radio, buzzing to be sure that the other side is in communication. So you make various noises, testing, is that so-and-so, give a call letter, etc., 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 and you know you're in touch. So in the same way, uh, we, in our general daily converse, we feel each other out by saying these little social platitudes. And then we test the person as to whether they, by the sound of the voice, by the smell, which we don't think about, but which we absorb unconsciously, uh, unless they smell very strong, then... complete with bombs. And uh, <laughs> then, then we, we, we get the feeling, uh, do I want to explore this relationship further? We test. But then those people, you see, who invade your privacy instantly, uh, it's either the drunk or the child who's quite innocent or the probing psychologist who is playing his special game, maybe of one-upmanship of some kind, and sees how uncomfortable he can make you. Now, what are, what are the tactics of response to be in these various situations? Uh, when you get the probing psychologist, you can shrug your shoulders and say, <laughs> didn't your mother ever teach you manners? 
<laughs> or uh, you can simply not defend yourself. Uh, some people just don't need to defend themselves at all. And so that probing them in that way is like tossing a rock into a well and you wait and there's no splash. And that really sets people back. Krishnamurti does that. If you make a comment about somebody in his presence that is in any way adverse or critical, he gives just no response at all. So do you suddenly feel, like the Buddha said, you spat at the sky and the spit falls back into your own face? <laughs> And uh, I was once present where a certain person of that nature was using as his ploy silence. And the silence implied the conversation of everyone else around this table is trivial. There was one of those tangible silences. And suddenly someone at the table turned to him and said, you know, I can't stand people who use silence as a weapon. <laughs> no, the conversation then started. <laughs> but, uh, and it was a very, uh, rather a dis disagreeable conversation, if I may say so. <laughs> So, there is, you see, always the, the response to psychological attack and invasion of privacy, uh, as Allen Ginsberg does it. If anybody presses on him too hard, he'll strip naked. And if anybody challenges him to fight, he said, all right, you challenge me, I choose the weapons. Who's going to undress first? <laughs> Uh, and he has this kind of um, marvelous feeling that there, there really isn't anything that he's hiding. I don't know, there may be, but, uh, but he certainly doesn't impress me as anyone who really hides anything. So that you see, to enter into a human relationship where uh, there is nothing to hide and you don't depend on any sort of property gimmick for your personal worth, that's the thing we get very easily hooked on. Uh, it may be your car, it may be your clothes, it may be uh, your cameras, your style of watches, your fountain pens, your heaven only knows what, uh, your home that you possess. And that is inseparable from your personality. And you can't be you if you start naked. So the confrontation of people in an atmosphere of physical or spiritual nakedness is one where uh, many individuals seem they have completely lost because they can't play their accustomed role. Of course, I have a certain advantage that even if I'm stark naked, I can still talk. <laughs> but now, supposing uh, they say now, you shut up. <laughs>
defend yourself with language, see? Uh, that's like taking off an extra set of clothes. But as I say, there's a certain kind of individual whom this doesn't phase at all. Because he knew from the beginning that he was nothing. And nobody. And of course, that's a very important thing to know. Because you have nothing to lose. He who sleeps on the floor will not fall out of bed. And he who has nothing to lose has really no fear, either of the loss of his property, his propriety, or his privacy. But, uh, there are other people who, in this situation of the loss of privacy, are completely degraded. The way, for example, we systematically deprive privacy of the, from the intimate inmates of prisons and mental hospitals. You go to a mental hospital. All the Johns are completely exposed. Uh, everything is smooth walls. There are no corners, there are no secrets. Uh, everybody's sort of herded around and they all look the same, put the same uniform, have the same haircut. Uh, and, and also in the army, in the, say, in the marine boot camps. The same, the first thing is to degrade the individual ritually so that he has no privacy. And to see what happens to him if you do that. Now you may, uh, the result of this is that you may brainwash him completely and make him nothing more than an obedient tool of the system. And in this case, you see what you've got, you're back again to monarchical politics. And so in a system where the design of uh, the, the politics is that the community of human beings is ruled, whether by an individual monarch or by a totalitarian state, makes no difference. But the dynamics of that situation is that this community is not a group, it is a crowd. Now we therefore have to understand the difference between a group and a crowd. Because this is the key to the whole thing, and if you understand this, uh, you can get round the things that seem threatening in a society where there is no privacy. A crowd is structured in this way. There is a number of identical individuals, suitably brainwashed, and there is a leader, whether this is an individual again or a bureaucratic entity of some kind. The relationship between them is this. In other words, the line of communication is from the individual to the leader. And uh, they don't really, they're not really in communication with each other at all. Except in so far, they may communicate with each other, but this controls the nature of their communication. So in other words, when a politician speaks to an enormous audience, 
what he sets up is a crowd because the audience are individuals who don't know each other they're just people they're just heads or hands and so the leader really communicates with them and they can't answer back unless they do so as a group see Kyle you know then they answer back but all as a collective because along the lines of this kind of communication supposing I talk to a, to a thousand people over the radio and they all send me back letters well I can't read them much less answer them there isn't time so this is a strictly one-way communication now then let's look in contrast to that the design of a group we'll make it a circle again for convenience now a group has no leader because it is itself an organism and so the lines of communication run first of all like this They're much more complicated than that. They are also this. Now you see we're going on. Let's go this one around. Who isn't he talking to yet? He isn't talking to that one. He isn't talking to this one. He isn't talking to this one. Do you see how I'm not going to draw this at all? It'll take forever. But uh, the thing is that these, th this sort of pattern is group communication. This sort of pattern is crowd communication. So uh, a group, an effective group, a true uh, group of human beings is one in which there are enough people or not too many people so that they can all know each other and are in communication with each other. Now then you say, how do you relate that sort of a cell to the larger human group? Why, very simply, every group appoints one cell to represent it. And that cell goes and joins a group of representative cells. And they have to be of adequate size for them all to be in touch with each other. <coughs> and if it's necessary to go higher than that and include a still number, a greater number of collectivity of small cells, <coughs> the representative group representative sub one will represent elect representative sub two to go to a representative group of sub twos and in this method which is the actual original design of the Republic of the United States which of course has been completely overlooked you get a hierarchy of cell structures where Because I am in communication with you here, and I'm fully occupied in this system of communication, the chances are that I don't know a great deal about what other cell groups are doing, because it's too complicated for me to scan. But therefore, we will delegate one particular individual and say, you make a specialty of scanning these other groups around here, so that you have a wider knowledge. And so it goes, so that you have a hierarchical system of communication 
you, you can call it government if you want to, because what we are simply talking about is an information system. So that, for example, one of these will not ever individually elect the President of the United States, but his representative at a certain level will, because his representative at a certain level knows far more about who to select than he does, because he's made it his business to do so. Every individual can't do that. And so you will find that this is the system of direct representation used by all dictators. All dictators vote themselves into office by referendum. They take it to the people. They say, you are the people, you elect me. Well, it's the easiest thing in the world to bamboozle an enormous number of people by mass persuasion to do practically anything you want. But you can't bamboozle that kind of structure. It's too strong. Here, with the mass communication, you see everybody getting the same thing. Now, oddly enough, you see, McLuhan, in his thought about the future of communications, says that with the development of the electronic circuits, we tend towards tribalism. And this precisely is tribalism. This is the monolithic state. This is the tribal community. This is utterly paternalistic. But this is different. This is, gives everybody a chance to have his say so. And have his say so not only in terms of a yes or no vote, but the thing, the unit, the tribe is small enough for there to be a discussion. And that's why we can't understand about Indians, Amerindians, why they don't like the idea of voting. They have a power. They're like Quakers. The Quakers don't vote. They get what they call a sense of the meeting. Because they all know each other and they consider putting a thing to a vote as a kind of unreasonable procedure. We should all get together and feel it out and establish through discussion a consensus. So this, as I say, is a very strong human cluster, very difficult to be pushed around by this. Now, as we have developed electronic communications thus far, we have things like uh, great national hookups. So everybody in the United States is watching whatever it is that comes over ABC or NBC uh, at the major hours. And, uh, but that is, uh, I think, a fairly temporary phenomenon. With the development of UHF, ultra-high frequency television broadcasting, and the more we develop um, microelectric machinery, the greater the capacity for discrimination on the dial. See, as it is, you get a lot of interference, and therefore it cuts out the possibility of an innumerable cluster of stations. But as the technology becomes more perfect, you can receive an enormous number of different stations, and these stations will increasingly have machinery that makes them fairly simple to run. For example, with a um, videotape machine now made by Ampex costing $6,000, and a Sony television camera costing $250.
you can produce a television show with only one technician. The average TV show produced in a studio requires 14 technicians now. So, as this happens, you see, it means that there can be an increasing variety of the kind of material that is presented through the electronic channels. The McLuhan adds to this a kind of strange point of view, which is that it really doesn't matter what kind of material is going over, because the message is not the content of the television show, but your exposure to and involvement in that kind of a medium. Well, there's something to this. That uh, when you touch a person physically, which is a sort of a direct communication, you don't necessarily say anything. It is just the act of touching that may uh, give the message or the massage of affection or love. And so people love to wander into the streets and mingle with a crowd of shoppers, especially a colorful crowd going back and forth and the feeling of all the interesting people around and everything. They're not saying to anything to each other in words, but this, this exciting feeling of being involved in this uh, colorful goings on. And so in the same way, when we are plugged in if not turned on, uh, to a huge um, in and outing of human com communication. We feel very like an old Italian peasant lady leaning on the windowsill and gazing at the busy street, watching life flow by. And in a way, you see, there's something when you see it in terms of the old Italian mama uh, watching the world go by, there's something very uh, fundamentally good about that. Something we associate with um, colorful villages, exciting streets, and uh, the romance of an archaic peasant type person. But you see that that sort of thing of watching and ever-varying panorama of life is not completely excluded by electronic technology. Especially if people in their uh, net structure are organized here as true nets. This is not a true net. This is just a trap. I wonder if it's ever struck you how curious a thing it is. That Hey, Eclecticasters, thanks for tuning in to another episode, I really do appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed this two-parter with the whole singularity, transhumanism, privacy surveillance topic, I think it's super important, and I hope that you guys can finally conclude, as I have after listening to that, the huge danger that we're in between becoming a crowd instead of forming the group that we want to be, right, and, um, 
Yeah, there's not much more that I could say that Alan Ross doesn't put in very clear terms. So, if anyone wants to conclude or to follow up or discuss it further, Instagram, Facebook, or Tumblr, hit up the Lunacy Tribe. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about it. Let's not destroy and burn all the bridges that we've created.